about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Tonight's uh, first Bible reading comes from Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 5, starting at verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and so he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labour that he can carry in his hand. The second reading is from Acts chapter 20, verses 32 to 38, on page 1101. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we we must help the weak, remembering the words of Lord Jesus himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Well, you might like to keep that passage open in Acts chapter 20. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Uh, Father God, we thank you and praise you for the privilege we have of coming to your word this evening. We ask that as we come together and look at it, that you might continue to speak to us and change us uh, so that we might be people who are true disciples of yours. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's lots of ways of measuring a country's wealth, but consistently Australia is one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Some suggest it's the third wealthiest per capita in the world. It certainly is recognised as having one of the largest middle classes uh, in the world. It's certainly a place that seems to have lots of money, lots of material wealth. When it comes to Sydney, we have a particular fixation with material wealth. British psychologist and author um, Oliver James wrote a book called Affluenza. And what he decided to do is roam around the world and look at different cities and different countries and speak to people about consumerism and about happiness. And what he noticed about Sydney's culture is that people are in the pursuit of property, 
perfect bodies and status. And what he had to say about it was brutal. Absolutely brutal. His conclusion was that the affluenza virus was worst in Sydney out of all the places that he visited. He said he found the process of interviewing locals here in Sydney a depressing experience. He said Sydney is the most vacuous of all Sydney's cities. Is that him brutal? Like, oh, really? I want to defend the city. Hang on, we're not that bad. It can't be that bad here. We're not that kind of committed to material wealth, to property and to perfect bodies and to status. Surely we're better than that. Well, he might be partly true. Maybe he's a bit like the person who is able to tell the goldfish in the goldfish bowl that they're actually swimming in water that they didn't know about. That there's somehow something they're swimming in that, that actually you can't see because you're swimming in it. Maybe he has a point. Maybe there's something about the water we swim here about in Sydney that somehow kind of means that we're committed to having huge amounts of wealth. Certainly, we're not a particularly generous country, are we? Uh, we're not known for our uh, phil- philanthropy. It appears like we don't actually give much away and actually our treatment of asylum seekers really lacks generosity. Well, the Christian person is called to a different life, called to a countercultural life. So what does that life look like in this context? What does it mean for Christians to live counterculturally, to actually speak into that space, to speak into our city, to offer something completely different? Well, in our passage from Acts chapter 20, we read these words. It is more blessed to give than to receive. The vaccine for the vacuousness of our city is generosity. A generosity that speaks into our desire to have wealth and property and perfect bodies and status. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we as a church led the way? That we were known as the generous church that speaks a different narrative into this world that shapes the story of our city, that says to people, actually there's a different way of living, a better way of living. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Wouldn't it just be wonderful? Imagine all the things that would take place in our city, all the lives that would be liberated, all the people we could welcome, all the ministries that we could see take place. Well, tonight as we come to this passage, I want to think about two things and a number of implications. The first thing I want to think about is generosity and grace. Then I want to think about generosity and the heart. Come with me to um, Acts chapter 20, and we're beginning at verse 32. It's just going to be up here on the screen. 
uh, if you want to also see it there. It should be coming up any second. Excellent. The passage begins in this way. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. Paul is speaking here to the Ephesian leaders. Uh, The passage is full of pathos. He's saying goodbye to them. And as you just heard in the reading, they kneel and they pray together and they shed tears because they will not see his face again. And Paul says, I commit you to the word of his grace. Now Paul is saying his final words to these people. These must be important words, the kind of words you would say as you're leaving people behind. You kind of leave the most important things to last. And so Paul says, as he begins his final words, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. I wonder what Paul has in mind as he speaks these words. Well, earlier on in verse 21, he said things like this, I've declared both to Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Later on, he'll go on to say, my only aim is to finish the race, to complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul is committed to the word of grace, of his grace. And what he's been telling those who have been listening is that Jesus, the one who had all the wealth in all the universe, left all that behind. And he humbled himself. He didn't consider what was equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage, but he made himself nothing. And taking on the nature of a servant, he became made in human likeness. And he was found in an appearance as a man. And he further humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. What is this word of grace? God of the whole universe comes to us in his son, reaches out to us and calls us to himself at great cost. Obedient to death, even death on the cross. And the thing about it is we didn't deserve it. We didn't want it. We've been going our own way, doing our own thing, not actually interested. And yet the God of the whole universe, who owned everything, was interested in us. I love that verse in 1 Peter where it talks about us being a chosen people, a royal priesthood, God's special possession, God's treasured possession. God wanted us so much as his treasured possession that he sent his own son into the world to die in our place. That's the word of grace. Wow. 
And Paul has been calling people to repent and believe, to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And so it's in this context he speaks those words, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In light of the word of grace, in light of what God has done. He goes on um, in verse 32 to tell us a little bit more about this word of grace. He says, this word of grace can build you up. Or another way you could say that is, this word of grace will build you. Sometimes we think of God's grace coming to us and drawing us to himself and us repenting and believing and that's kind of the end of the story. But here Paul's reminding us that God's grace towards us continues to build us. Our lives are built in grace. It doesn't stop when we first come to know him. It continues within our lives. We are built with grace. And then he goes on to say, and you will be given an inheritance. Once again, that passage in 1 Peter comes to mind as you think of that. People who are treasured by God, and God says to us, in my great mercy, I'm going to give you an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade an inheritance kept in heaven for you. Can you believe it? Your future is secure. Your future is secure because of what Christ has done on the cross. You have an inheritance that will not perish, spoil or fade. It cannot be taken from you. This is the word of grace. The word of grace, Paul goes on to say, for those who have been set apart, those who have been made holy, who are God's treasured possession. Well, Paul clearly understands this word of grace deeply within his life. And it's affected the way he's able to be generous. He knows what it means to be more blessed to give that more blessed to give than receive. And so how does that actually work out in his life? What does that mean in terms of what he does? Well you see there in verses thirty-four and thirty-five how this actually works out. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now this is not the only way Paul operated. He operated in lots of different ways as he preached the gospel to people. Certainly he received gifts from people. He supported people in their various houses. But in this instance he's reminding us that he's actually worked as well. And the reason that he worked is he didn't want to be a burden to those who he's preaching the gospel to. He wanted it to be about a word of grace. And indeed, as he worked, he supported his companions. He's describing how this word of grace has shaped his generosity in his life. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. It helps us see the way he's applied it to his life. 
And what he wants to do, I think, is make the distinction between preaching the gospel because you're paid to do it and preaching the gospel because of the word of grace. And that's an important distinction because very often people can think of ministers and other people being paid to preach the gospel. And it kind of tarnishes the word of grace if, if that happens. Now, I have a story um, of some missionaries before World War II who were working in tribal areas of Malaysia and they were finding things really, really difficult. Uh, they didn't seem to be getting much traction. They'd been working for a number of years amongst tribal people, finding it very difficult to preach the gospel. The war years came and they were incarcerated and interned in, in um, POW camps. Life became extremely difficult for them. But after the war, they decided to remain and they were poverty-stricken. They hardly had enough money to feed themselves. They had to live day by day, but they were determined to spread the word of grace. And all of a sudden, those people who saw them there, the tribes that they'd been speaking to, suddenly went, Oh, these people are not being paid by the British to come and speak to us, like the government people we know. These people are different. They're given up everything to be here. And when people came to understand that they were preaching because of the word of God's grace, it transformed them. And lives began to change because they realised that the people who were amongst them, the missionaries who were amongst them, were there because of God's grace, not because of the money that they were earning. Now that's the kind of thing that takes place actually largely in our churches and there's a distinction that's made uh, in, in many of our churches around this because I don't want to be paid to preach. It does something to your preaching if you're paid to preach. Uh, in our churches we receive a stipend. People generously provide so that I'm freed up to do ministry. That's the best way to think about it. I'm not paid an hourly rate or anything like that. People, This church generously provides for me and the other ministry staff so that we're freed up to do ministry. I used to love it when I went into high school scripture and the kids would be sitting there and they'd say, Sir, you're just paid to tell us about Jesus. And I'd say, Actually, no. I'm not paid at all to tell you about Jesus. There's a church down the road that really cares about you knowing about Jesus and so they've freed me up so I can come here. But I don't have to be here. I want to be here. I want to tell you about the word of his grace. And it's a beautiful thing to be freed up to minister in that way. Now Paul's applied it in a particular way but there's lots of different ways we can apply the word of this grace in terms of generosity. And Paul is saying, let the word of grace shape the way that you are generous. He's giving us an example, but his principle is the word of grace needs to shape our hearts and our lives. Well, if the word of grace shapes us, it's also true 
that if we're not generous, then perhaps the word of grace hasn't shaped our hearts. If we're not people of generosity, then perhaps this word of grace hasn't impacted us in the complete way it could. Perhaps you find yourself struggling with this notion of generosity. Or worse still, sometimes you might think you're being generous, but actually you're trying to manipulate God. I remember I was 10 years old and um, I saved up 10 bucks. Like 10 bucks was a huge amount of money, like so much money. We didn't get much pocket money, but I saved 10 bucks. And then I put it in the plate. People were pretty stunned. You put 10 bucks of your pocket money in the plate? Somehow, though, I got it into my head that God will bless you tenfold if you give. So I was kind of expecting $100 back. You can be generous for all kinds of different reasons, but you can also not be generous for all kinds of different reasons. And I reckon it's to do with your heart. You can know about the grace of God. You can understand that God has been generous towards you in Jesus Christ, but your heart can still be stuck. You've got to know more than just the grace of God. You've got to understand it in your heart. It's a heart issue. And we see that here in verse 33. Paul says, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. Uh, the word there for coveted is actually desired or lusted after. For those Greek geeks, it's epithumia. It's the idea of desiring something completely in your heart. This is a heart issue. And Paul said he's had to guard against that. He's had to work against this with the word of grace to deal with this issue in his heart. He has not desired after these things. Now, a little bit later on, Paul will say in 1 Timothy, these kinds of words about money and the way that it grips your heart. He says, for the love of money, love is a heart word, is the root of all kinds of evil. It's amazing how it works, isn't it? We can fail to be generous or we can be generous for the wrong reasons because of our heart's desires, because we lust after certain things. Now, Tim Keller's been particularly helpful here, I think, in thinking about these issues. And so it may be that we lack generosity because we start to spend our money on the things that our hearts desire. Uh, perhaps it's status. Heard recently of someone who's decided to go overseas and get their PhD in America in a recognised university. They want the status. It's going to cost them $500,000. Their heart and their money are going together. Now, maybe there's reasons for that and maybe there's good reasons for that, but you can see how it works, can't you? Perhaps the issue for you is approval. Maybe you need to dress in a certain way. Maybe you need to have a particular position. Maybe you need to be paid so much money or go on certain holidays to be approved of. I know it's one of my struggles. I have difficulty with approval sometimes. I like to be approved of. And so the way that works out in my own life is that 
I feel like I need to know lots of stuff because I'm a minister and people expect me to know stuff. And so I have no problem at all spending money on books. And what made it worse is Amazon where you can just click the thing and buy the book online. So I've got all these books sitting there that I actually haven't read. I want them. I think, oh, I need that knowledge. I think that I could do with that knowledge. It will help me speak better and do things better and, and talk into people's lives better. And, of course, that's partly true. I do need to be knowledgeable about things. My desire for approval is driving the way I spend my money. Perhaps for you it's something to do with comfort or control or security. You're putting all the money away for a rainy day and you keep putting it away and keep putting it away, keep putting it away and not, not being generous with it because you're scared about the future and what might happen. Now there's wisdom here, but you can see how your heart can start worshipping things other than God. You can see how your heart can start to forget that actually your inheritance is secure in heaven you have been provided for in every way. Your security does not lie in the accumulation of wealth and material things. And that, of course, is the problem about this. If our hearts follow these things, we become enslaved to those things. And suddenly we find ourselves working enormous hours earning money so that we can support the idols of our heart, that we can get the approval or the comfort or the status or the security that we want. And our lives become ruled and enslaved because of the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil. So how do we deal with that? We know that the grace of God is something that should be working in us. But how do we deal with that? Well, during the week, Mataroni had his annual Facebook post. I, I love this team, by the way. It's, we have it. Can we put that up in a minute. Um, I love the team that I work on. It's so diverse. We have Roger Fitz posting every hour, Matt posting once a year. But you, you know when Matt posts, it's going to be gold, and it was. This is part of the poem that he posted, which I think speaks to what we're talking about tonight. Let me read it for you. We can put it up on the screen now. Immortal heat, O let thy greater flame attract the lesser to it. Let those fires which shall consume the world first make it tame and kindle in our hearts such true desires as may consume our lusts and make the way. Then shall our hearts pant thee. Then shall our brain all her invention on thy altar lay. Our desires consumed by the greater fire. By the greater flame. making way for the word of grace. And I think 
the extent to which the fire of the word of grace consumes our lusts and our wrong desires is to the extent that we can be generous with all that God has given us. The extent in which we can know that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so we need to let that flame, that fire, that word of grace consume us and deal with all those other desires and things that lead us astray. Well, what are some of the implications? How does this actually work out in our lives? Well, just now you heard um, a report on parish council and how things are going and how the finances are going here. And in some ways, I'm a little bit reluctant about those reports. We have a bit of a conversation at Parish Council about how best to do this and how often to do these reports and how to best meet our budgets because frequently, you know, in most churches, you get a little bit behind and you kind of want to reach your budget and then you're thinking about new things. And I'm always just a little bit reluctant. Not, not that I don't want to be transparent. I want people to know what's going on, but... I don't want to be motivated by the fact that there's a budget and we need to meet the budget. That feels wrong to me. Now, I understand that Paul motivated various churches and said we need to meet budgets and you said you would give and you, I better go and pick up this collection here and take it to the Jerusalem churches. So there's some pragmatics here. But imagine if we were a whole church transformed by the grace of God, by the word of grace, and we really, really let the truth sink into our hearts that it's more blessed to give than to receive. I reckon if that really happened and we led the way as a church like that, the parish council's problem wouldn't be how do we meet budget, it would be how do we spend the money that people have been so generous with and how do we give it to other parishes, other missionaries, other people who are in greater need than us. Imagine that moment. Our church leading the way, leading this city, transforming people's hearts because of God's grace towards us. Seeing this vacuous city changed by the gospel of God's grace. Imagine! Wouldn't we be singing his praises? Wouldn't it be fantastic? Think about it. Two other practical things. Let's keep each other accountable. I reckon this is really hard. <laughs> it's really hard to have the conversation with one another, isn't it? about how generous we're being. To say, hey, how's your generosity going? Whether it's in time or money or gifts. We kind of find that really difficult, but hey, we want to see each other grow. We want to build, be built by the gospel of grace. So let's take the opportunity to speak into each other's lives. Encourage, challenge, nurture. Help each other as we work out what this looks like. Let's keep each other accountable for the way we do these things. I'm not saying you have to disclose everything to everybody. Just talk it over with people. Maybe think about it in your small group and how it works out in your small group. 
Talk about what you do. What's the best way forward? You'd be surprised. This church has some very, very generous people and they're wonderful examples of what that means. I met someone recently who said to me, I didn't actually get much teaching on being generous when I became a Christian. Um, And why didn't you as a church teach me a little bit more about being generous? That's a good point. Probably didn't talk about that that much. Yes, I'll have to think about how we do that. What do we do? Then this person went on to say, and I was just so encouraged. They said, my income's different every single week. I don't know what I'm going to get in. I just have one of those jobs that pays me something different every week. But the first thing I do when I get my income is I work out how I'm going to be generous with what God's given me. And then I work out what to do with the rest of my income. Isn't that amazing? That's a grace-shaped heart, can I tell you? That's someone who's got God's grace in terms of generosity. So, my last point is, plan to be generous. It's good to be generous in terms of spontaneity. It's good to do that, of course it is. To see a need and to be able to support someone generously. But plan to be generous. Sit down and look at your budget and say, hey, how am I going to be generous in this coming year? How can I be generous with God's, God's grace that he's given me, all the things that he's given me at this stage? What can I do? Because I want a grace-shaped heart. Let me pray. Father God, we are just astounded at how generous you have been towards us in your son. Father, we just ask that your, the word of grace would just absolutely sink, sink deep into our hearts and into our lives, that we may be consumed by that flame, that all other flames would be quenched, and that the true flame of your grace in Jesus Christ might shape the rest of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.